0: I would be in Boston hanging out playing with other musicians and somebody mentioned there's this guy who has a radio show on the Harvard radio station, a jazz show, and uh, he has jam sessions at the radio station every now and then, and I think I showed up at one of those. I was invited to one of them by somebody, and that's where I met Tom. And we just hit it off. We became friends. Quickly, I I was an admirer of Tom. I thought he was a sophisticated, interesting, thoughtful, just a, a very interesting guy. And he was just a couple of years older than I was, but he seemed to be so much more worldly. And He was a very interesting man. And of course, here he is from Waco, Texas, and I'm a New Yorker. He seemed more sophisticated than I was.
2: Don't.
1: icon. I'm your host, Travis Scott, and welcome back to the Tom Wilson Story. In the previous episode, we dove into Tom's formative years in order to understand the kind of foundational upbringing that could set a person on the path to becoming one of the most influential producers you've never heard of. It turns out, one of the most important components was, and always will be, education. Not much is known about Tom's time at the historic all-black Fisk University, whose alumnus include the likes of W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. But after just one year of attending Fisk, Tom transferred to Harvard. To see Tom on campus during this time would have been an unusual sight, considering the early 50s were not particularly kind to people of color in any context, especially in higher education. Couple this with the brewing kettle of the civil rights movement, which, in the words of the late congressman, civil rights leader, and very visible icon, John Lewis, was starting to make good trouble. Tom would have been one of just a handful of African American men to have attended up to that point. In fact, it wasn't until 1967 that Harvard enrolled its first African American woman, Lillian Lincoln. This incredible woman definitely deserves an entire series dedicated to her own achievements in the business world. How I Built This, if you're listening, we're talking to you. Tom immediately found himself involved with the music scene, and he helped start the Harvard New Jazz Society on campus. He was even temporarily the provisional president until new members were voted in. He also helped put on events around Boston that would serve as forums for local jazz personalities to field questions from curious music lovers unaware of the phenomenon known as jazz. Questions as simple as what is jazz or what's the difference between Dixieland swing and modern and what is bebop and progressive? Alongside his course load, Tom would take a job at a student-run radio station, WHRB, later in life, he would credit the most important ingredient to his success in the music industry as working at this station. While working there, he quickly became an MC and hosted a popular show on Sundays dedicated to live jazz sessions at the studio, reminiscent of the jazz jam sessions that used to happen at his grandfather's rug cleaning job. One of the musicians was legendary jazz composer, arranger, and bassist, Chuck Israels. It's these moments of connection, where skill meets ambition, where vision meets passion, that fuel the fire and lay the groundwork for Tom's immense success.
2: Chuck Israel
0: is a professional bass player. Uh, He's a man who's traveled the world, played with a lot of tremendous artists, and he was one of Tom's early friends back at Harvard and into starting of transition records. He was the guy that I also felt the need to be able to talk to, to see what Tom was like during those early years, getting right out of college and getting into starting his own record label. What? he was as a person at that time. And Chuck Israels was nice enough to go ahead and sit down with us as we discussed Tom Wilson there in the mid to late fifties. Rather moderately tall, good looking black guy who was out of place at Harvard because that was 1958. You didn't see black Harvard students. That was a kind of a surprise that he was in that circumstance. He was completely at home intellectually and, you know, nobody questioned his uh, legitimacy of being there. Nobody thought, oh, this guy's gotten in on some kind of racial quota or anything like that because he was an absolutely super-competent, smart, educated guy.
1: Tom would graduate cum laude from Harvard with a degree in economics after which he would quickly borrow $900 to start his own record label called Transition Records. When asked at the time why he started the company, he said, one of our main objectives is to record neglected American compositions, which we feel deserve recognition. Large record companies were reluctant to sign unknown or emerging artists at the time because they couldn't sell. The majors had no interest in developing artists, they only wanted developed ones, but transition could be different. Transition could record emerging talents and help them become famous on their own merit. And Tom had his hands in every facet of transition records, from producing to handwriting liner notes for the records.
0: this record company, Transition Records, and I was more interested in hanging out with Tom in Cambridge and helping him with his record company than I was at going to school. And then he had a recording session that that actually took place at the Harvard Radio Station Studio with Donald Byrd and Hank Mobley and Horace Silver and Doug Watkins and Art Blakey. And I was at that session helping Tom. That was another kind of cementing moment in our relationship, where I was helping him in his professional work.
1: By 1957, Transition had put out about 10 records, but would be bankrupt. Now this was not a sign of failure. In fact, quite the contrary. After recording the likes of Cecil Taylor, Doug Watkins, Donald Byrd, and Herb Pomeroy, the founder of the MIT Festival Jazz Ensemble. Tom had plenty to hang his hat on, especially one record in particular, Sun Song, by the Afrofuturist pioneer, Sun Ra. George Clinton never personally knew the man, but in talking about Sun Ra and Jimi Hendrix said, me and Sun and Jimi Hendrix were eating at the same lunch counter, and we wondered what that lunch counter might have sounded like. We enter a noisy, smoke-filled diner where Jimi Hendrix and Sun Ra are sitting next to each other chatting about the meaning of reality, Jimi Hendrix strikes a match to light his Paul Mall cigarette, and in walks George Clinton. If you are not a myth,
3: whose reality are you? If you are not a reality, whose myth are you? Man, sun that's deep, like real deep, I dig that. Whose myth are you anyways? We hold this myth to be potential, not self-evident, but equational, another dimension of another kind of living life.
2: Oh, yes, son. Is that so? So what does this idea of reality have to do with music, with funk? Funk is fun, and it's also a state of mind, but... It's also the ramifications of that state of mind. See, once you've done the best you can, folk it. The Earth cannot move without music.
3: The earth moves in a certain rhythm, a certain sound, a certain note, you see. When the music stops, the Earth will stop, and everything upon it will die. You said it. You said it, son.
2: Man, did you say it. Well, I say, free your mind and your booty will follow. You gotta put a little glide in your slide, dip in your hip, and come up onto the mothership. And to quote Mr. Hendrix, excuse me while I kiss the sky.
1: Gentlemen, what'll it be?
2: The trouble
3: with people on this planet is they refuse to think. They refuse to believe anything except what they know. And I believe... I know what I want, and that's the tuna on rye. Gotcha, tuna on rye. What about you, fellas?
2: I'll second what Sun Ra has eloquently stated about the inhabitants of the blue dot, and add to it a fat slice of banana cream pie and a coffee black with more sugar than you could think necessary for a human.
3: Man, if you give me a bowl of that soup of the day,
2: I'll be sitting pretty.
1: After bouncing around various record labels like United Artists and Savoy Records where he reunited with Sun Ra, Tom finally lands a producer position with Columbia Records. Not surprisingly, Tom was the first African American to hold this position with this historic record label. It's here, at Columbia, where he would smoothly grow into the role of powerhouse producer whose name you see on the back of some of the greatest albums of all time. This was possible to replacing legendary Quincy Jones at a National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences meeting on the role of the A&R man. To quote from the article, What is A&R? by Senior Professor of Berklee College of Music in Boston, Tom Stein, The traditional A&R is the gatekeeper of industry for the unsigned musicians. They are the point of contact with the label during contract negotiations, and their job is to find marketable music for the company. Another producing giant in attendance at this meeting was the head of Columbia Records, Goddard Lieberson, who casually went by the apt nickname God. It's said that like recognizes like, right? Lieberson listened to Tom speak and offered him a job on the spot. In his first few years as a staff producer at Columbia, Tom was under Columbia's head A&R, David Kapralik, or as Tom put it, at a time when I was not properly working for Columbia, I was being used by them, shall we say. Kapralik later went on to manage the band Sly and the Family Stone, fronted by another native Texan known as Sly Stone. And perhaps Kapralik's biggest contribution to our story: he introduced Tom to a young and scrappy Robert Zimmerman, A.K.A. Bob Dylan. <laughs>
0: I remembered more about uh, I, just, uh, I liked him so much and we had so much fun together, and I wish I had been in contact with him throughout later on in his life. We would have continued to have a good time, I'm sure. It's just one of those things. We lost track, and
1: that was that. Texas monthly writer Michael Hall.
0: Um, would you like to see the city of Waco or would you like to see some tribute? in some way paid, you know, um, to Tom Wilson, you know, they're, they're just now getting a a Dory Miller statue memorial, um, in Waco. And it seems like there's a little more awareness, Mm -hmm. um, bit by bit, but what, 70 years since Doris (laughs) Miller died. (laughs) Well, and it's been 40 since 40, right? 2018 now. So 40 years since Tom Wilson died. So, um, (laughs) would, would you like to see, you know, um, some record that he was there and that he was, you know. Absolutely, and if, if they needed to be convinced, they, the city fathers and mothers of Waco should know that, that out in the rock and roll world, tourists would pay money to come to Waco <laughs> to see some kind of sight on Tom Wilson, this guy who had a hand in the careers of you know, some of the greatest American musicians of all time. Um, this guy was born and raised right here in Waco, Texas had a huge influence on the world of the 60s and 70s on up till today. And uh, I mean, I don't know what they could do, but they should definitely, should definitely fix, his, fix his headstone. But you know, put a little, put a little monument to the, the place where he was born and raised, you know?
1: As we continue to move forward in the Tom Wilson story, I believe that one of the themes that keeps popping up is the theme of connection being in the right place at the right time and some of it is luck and some of it is good planning and good thinking and on Tom's part it looks like Tom made his own luck and in a lot of ways made sure that he was the right man in the right place. Sometimes the timing might have been a stroke of fate or a blessing of the universe but Without being able to control the timing element, Tom made sure that he had all of the other elements within his grasp. And this seems consistent for Tom's work. With his time at Harvard, and with his time in running transition records, he had his hands in every element of this production so that he was producing quality work that lasts until today. And I'm looking forward to learning more about Tom Wilson as we continue to tell the story.
0: god so i ran into the audio booth and i hit record and i even missed my
3: hair appointment because i was like fuck it like this story has to be told and it was amazing i am so excited
0: oh my god i cannot wait to hear this
1: On the next episode of Invisible Icon, we'll dive into Tom's work with Bob Dylan at Columbia Records and his eventual hiring at MGM, where he worked with the likes of Frank Zappa, The Velvet Underground, and many more legendary musicians, and even produced the theme song for a certain masked crusaders nostalgic television series. Want to know which one? Tune in next time to find out. This podcast is produced by Rogue Media Network. Our executive producers are Lindsay Littman, Zach Burke, Jacob Green, and Katie Selman. Our director is Mike Hamilton. A special thank you to the voice actors for today's episode. Terry Blues as George Clinton, ate Breezy as Jimi Hendrix, and Daniel Sapphire as Sun Ra. Our theme music is by the Bullies. Join us for the next installment of Visible Icon, The Tom Wilson Story.
2: This has been Globe Media Network Podcast.